Alright third grade parents, welcome back to Raise Ready Kids, where month by month you master the culture building strategies you need to raise kids with the knowledge, skills, character, and purpose they need to thrive. I'm Bill Jackson, founder of Raise Ready Kids, and your host this month. Where do the human qualities of compassion and caring come from? Why do some young people grow up to be compassionate and caring, and others not so much? And what can parents do to promote compassion and caring in their children? One way to gain insight into this question is to study human behavior in extreme circumstances, like the Holocaust. At that time, in the late 1930s and early 40s, the Jewish people were scattered across Europe. As the scale of Nazi violence against the Jews became clear, non-Jews in these countries had opportunities to help their Jewish brethren avoid persecution and death. Many thousands did hiding Jews in their homes or helping them escape to safer locations, despite enormous personal risk. But many more did little or nothing. Why did some people risk their lives on behalf of people they usually didn't know, while most people did not? Answering this question has been the life's work of Samuel Oliner, a Holocaust survivor himself. Born in eastern Poland, Oliner was a nine-year-old schoolboy when the Germans occupied Poland in September 1939. In August 1942, the Germans rounded up the residents of the ghetto where Samuel was living and murdered them in a nearby forest. Urged on by his stepmother, 12-year-old Samuel escaped to the countryside and found refuge with a friendly peasant woman named Bawina, who gave him a new name different clothes, and taught him to recite the catechism in Polish so that he could pass as a non-Jew. With Balwina's help, Oliner managed to conceal his true identity and survive until the end of the war. Oliner eventually emigrated to the United States, earned his doctorate in sociology, and dedicated his career to investigating what motivated people like Balwina to care for people like him, even when it might cost them their lives. Over several decades, he interviewed hundreds of rescuers who helped Jews, as well as hundreds of bystanders who chose not to help. His goal was to understand what motivated rescuers, as well as to explore what was different about their lives, including their upbringing, that could explain their altruism. Imagine your child all grown up when they're 30 or 50. I imagine you hope they'll be the kind of person who would choose to help someone in great need, even if it entailed serious personal risk. I hope that I could be that clear-minded and brave, and I hope that for my daughters too. And even if we or our children never have to make such high-stakes decisions as the rescuers of the Jews did, we'll still make decisions every day about how much of our time and energy we'll spend thinking about and caring for others, including our children, relatives, friends, and strangers. I imagine you hope your child will grow up to be the kind of person who freely extends love and care to a wide circle of people, including strangers. One of the things that Oliner's research shows is that people's ethical decisions in extraordinary moments, for example, during the Holocaust, are consistent with their decisions during the course of their everyday lives. The rescuers of the Jews during the Holocaust were people who were already oriented toward caring for other people and had a lot of practice doing so. All the practice they got before the war helped the rescuers develop a strong sense of empathy. 
compared to bystanders, they had a harder time watching other people suffer. They also had a stronger sense of self-efficacy than bystanders. They believed that they had the ability and the power to make a difference in the world. However, Olner found that the most important difference between rescuers and bystanders was that rescuers had deeply internalized an ethic of caring. Compared to bystanders, rescuers were more likely to describe growing up in a close family where parents modeled and directly taught caring moral values. Speaking about what they had learned from their parents, rescuers said things like, I learned generosity, to be open to help people. My mother was a model of Christian faith and of love of neighbor. They taught me to respect all human beings. He taught me to love my neighbor, to consider him my equal no matter what his nationality or religion. He taught me especially to be tolerant. And finally, my father taught me to love God and my neighbor regardless of their race or religion. An important note. While many rescuers mentioned religion as being important to them and their parents, there was no clear difference in religious affiliation between rescuers and bystanders. About 90% of both groups said they were affiliated with religious institutions while growing up. As Olinor writes, rescuers brought to the war a greater receptivity to others' need because they had learned from their parents that others were very important. The parents of rescuers and bystanders were equally likely to emphasize justice and fairness. However, the parents of rescuers were far more likely to emphasize caring and generosity. Interestingly, the parents of rescuers were much less likely to emphasize obedience as a value with their children than the parents of bystanders. Indeed, the Nazi rise to power was aided by the German people's willingness to obey the party's edicts. As Olinor notes, a deep commitment to caring sometimes requires disobeying authority. The bottom line, Olinor writes, is that for rescuers, helping Jews was an expression of ethical principles that extended to all of humanity, and while often reflecting concern with equity and justice, was predominantly rooted in care. So, how are we, the parents of America, doing today at cultivating an ethic of care amongst our children? To answer this, we can turn to the research of Richard Weisbord, lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and faculty director of the Making Caring Common Project at Harvard University. A few years ago, Weisbord and his colleagues asked a diverse sample of 10,000 American middle and high school students to compare the relative importance of being happy, being a good person who cares about others, and achieving at a high level. Happiness came out as the clear winner. About two-thirds of children ranked their happiness as more important than their goodness. The researchers also asked the students to imagine how their parents would rank these three values. Again, happiness was most likely to be ranked first, with about two-thirds of children saying that happiness was more important to their parents than goodness. Indeed, students in the study were three times more likely to agree than disagree with the statement my parents are prouder if I get good grades in my classes than if I'm a caring community member in class and school. The implications of this study are clear. American children value happiness and achievement over caring, in part because they believe their parents do too. It's not that parents say they don't value caring. 
According to a 2012 study, 96% of parents surveyed viewed developing moral character in children as very important, if not essential, and highly valued their children being honest, loving, and reliable. The problem is that message is often being lost in translation. As one of the boys in the study said, Dad says being kind matters, but he really wants me to win, whatever it takes. And as a girl said, Mom tells me that I should be nice, but she's a lot more excited when I make honor roll than citizen of the month. I don't mean at all to suggest that you should not care about your child's happiness and achievement. They absolutely matter. Yet, as the authors of the Making Caring Common study note, there are countless moments throughout childhood and adulthood when our happiness and desire to achieve collide with the interests of others. Whether we're helping another student when we're studying to ace the same exam, taking care of a sick relative when we're exhausted, or passing the ball during a basketball game when we'd really rather shoot. When the balance shifts too far towards our personal interests, we not only compromise our relationships, we're also at risk of being cruel, disrespectful, ungenerous, and dishonest. No doubt you already teach your child about the importance of caring. But in the coming years, as your child grows up and the academic pressure ramps up, will your child perceive that caring is number one for you, or will they get the sense that happiness or achievement is in the top spot? I recently asked my college-aged daughter what messages she got from me as she was growing up. Happiness was number one, she said, followed by caring for others and then achievement. If I could do it all over again, I'd make some adjustments with the goal of elevating caring for others into the top spot in my daughter's eyes. With more years under my belt, I've come to see more clearly how children's happiness, as well as their goodness, is promoted by caring for others. The goal of this month's Raise Ready Kids strategy, character modeling, is to help us figure out how to play our most important role as models for our children. After all, as the American novelist James Baldwin once said, Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. Your child is far more likely to internalize an ethic of caring and compassion if you model it in your own interactions with the world and invite your child along for the ride. This is a deep issue, of course. You may have been hoping that I would provide you with some neat and tidy parenting tips that would help you raise a caring and compassionate young person, something that might take a few minutes each day. But the reality is that if you want to raise a young person who might make the kind of choices that the rescuers of European Jews did, your child will need to see and feel that caring and compassion are fundamental building blocks of your own life and in your family's life. Moreover, they will need to see that your relationships and caring extend out to people who are unlike you, and that you invest time in caring for and supporting others, not because you expect something back, because that's just who you are. In his research, Samuel Olner found that distinctions of class and religion had been far less important to rescuers than to bystanders while growing up. Rescuers were significantly more likely to befriend both rich and poor, as well as those of different religions. 59% of rescuers counted Jews as among their personal friends before the war, compared to just 25% of bystanders. These personal relationships influenced how rescuers thought about their Jewish compatriots. As one rescuer told Olener, 
I could not comprehend that innocent persons should be persecuted just because of race. We all come from the same God. Oliner also found that an ethic of caring was so deeply rooted in rescuers that they did not need much time to make the risky decision to help their Jewish brethren. Asked how long it took them to make their first helping decision, more than two-thirds indicated minutes. Asked if they consulted with anyone prior to making their decision, 80% responded, no one. Luckily, there are many ways to be caring in this world, most of which can be made visible to your child. You can greet strangers, visit sick relatives, feed or collect clothes for the homeless, participate in marches or demonstrations in support of marginalized groups of people, or give money to worthy causes. Caring for animals and nature counts too. There are many ways. The psychologist Lisa Miller tells a wonderful story that illustrates our potential as role models for our children. Boarding the subway in New York City one morning, she entered a car with a ranting and raving homeless man with a half-eaten lunch in his lap. He was yelling out to everyone, Hey, do you want to sit with me? You want some of this lunch? Everyone in the car was doing their best to keep their distance and ignore the man. Then, an older woman and young girl, perhaps eight years old, boarded the train at a stop. Well-dressed and dignified, they appeared to be grandmother and granddaughter. As they entered the car, the homeless man bellowed out, Hey, do you want to sit with me? The grandmother and granddaughter looked at each other and nodded. Then they looked at the man and, without hesitation, walked over and sat down right next to him. Thank you, they said together. He then asked if they wanted some of his lunch. No, thank you, they said in unison. The man continued his fuming and questions for a while, but eventually settled down into his seat. Miller writes, That grandmother was spiritual, and she was making sure that her spiritual sensibility reached her granddaughter. The nod was spirituality shared between child and beloved elder. I felt I was watching the passing of a sacred torch, a flame passing through generations of family and community. I could almost hear the voice, What you do to the least of me, you do to me. You shall treat the stranger as your own, as you were a stranger once in the land of Israel. Our opportunity as parents is to demonstrate with our behavior that other human beings are not to be viewed primarily as smart or dumb, winners or losers, beautiful or ugly, but rather as fellow travelers' sacred spirits. Like the grandmother in the subway, we can team up with our child to love and serve our fellow human souls on earth, regardless of whether they can offer us anything back. It doesn't matter so much exactly what you do with your child. Rather, what matters most is what it feels like for your child in your household. Does it feel like caring for others, including people you don't know, is a foundational component of your life together? Or does it feel like caring is an add-on, something you do occasionally to check the box? Wherever you are on that spectrum, that's what your child is likely to internalize as a value. The good news is that we have within us enormous capacity for personal growth with regard to our priorities and choices. It is often not until well into adulthood that we develop our most important qualities, including deeper levels of empathy and the capacity to love others despite their flaws. As we approach our parenting journey, Richard Weisbord writes, it's vital to see ourselves not as static role models, but as imperfect human beings, 
continually developing in our relationships with our children and in our own moral and mentoring capabilities. As the civil rights leader Whitney Young once said, there is nothing noble in being superior to someone else. The only real nobility is in being superior to your former self. This is the essence of the character modeling strategy. You are on a journey to build a life that features certain ideas and commitments at the center. You have the opportunity to put caring for others at the center of your life. You can choose to spend less time worrying about whether your child is happy at any given moment and more time cultivating in your child what the novelist William Faulkner described as a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. Character modeling is a foundation of the Raise Ready Kids philosophy. Want your child to be curious? Be curious yourself and share your spirit of curiosity with your child. Want your child to be hardworking? Be hardworking yourself and expect your child to work hard too. Is humor an important value for you? Give yourself the space and time you need to cultivate and share your sense of humor with your family and the world. In this sense, parenting is really less about applying specific techniques as you interact with your child and more about continuous self-reflection and self-improvement. If you want to raise a kind and compassionate child, there's no substitute for doing the hard work of cultivating kindness and compassion in your own heart. Indeed, the potential for our own growth as parents is enormous. Everyone wins when we embrace this opportunity for growth, our children, our communities, and ourselves.